Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Think about this. You can't tell people what you think without also telling them what you think about them. Your message, in other words, will always reveal your opinion of the people that you're talking to. For Christians, this reality presents a unique opportunity. If we're going to talk to the world, we need to be conscious of what we think about the world. Because whether we're aware of it or not, our assumptions will be revealed by the way we talk. In this episode, Cameron and I will wrestle with the question of how we see sinners. More importantly, we'll come to terms with how Jesus sees sinners and how his example can set the tone for our message to the world. Well, Pastor Mark, I'd like to open this episode with something dangerous. I want to try to summarize a section of your sermon from last Sunday, and uh, you can tell me if I got it wrong or right, okay? Okay. So, <laughs> so there was, I think it was just a section of your sermon where you started talking about love, and you broke it down, you broke love down into sort of two aspects that I had never considered together before. And I want to talk about those. I want to talk about love generally in this episode. But first, let me see if I got you right. So the two aspects of love that we see in the New Testament anyway. First, we have love as acceptance of the other. Acceptance of someone just as they are, no strings attached kind of love. On the other hand, the other sort of love that you mentioned is maybe a visionary kind of love or a transformative kind of love that's interested in seeing the other become their best self. And maybe you accept them as they are, but you're not going to stop there. You, you want to see them grow and develop. And you said both of those kinds of love exist in the New Testament vision, but in Christ you see both of them at once. Yeah. As you're looking at Matthew 9, um, the focus is really Jesus's love for sinners. Hmm. The Pharisees object to the fact that Jesus is eating with sinners, and it opens this interesting question about the relationship that Jesus has with these people. We encounter them reclining with him at table. So he's showing them hospitality. And even in that gesture of reclining, that's something new because we've seen already in in Matthew 8 and 9 people rushing to Jesus. We've seen them kneeling before Jesus. We've seen them, you know, laying powerless before him Mm -hmm. and then rising and walking. But now we're seeing people reclining in his presence, sort of, you know, chilling with Jesus at the (laughs) table and considering who these people are that's a remarkable scene to to come in on and i mean considering who they are and who he is it's right. even more remarkable 
that this is possible, and it speaks to Jesus's affection for sinners. So in that sermon, I'm leaning heavily on Dan Doriani's expository commentary of Matthew, which is part of the big ESV expository commentary series, which I highly recommend. It's, it's seemingly massive because the volumes are, are quite thick, but they cover so much ground and they do it very succinctly. They kind of give you a good summary of, of uh, what you're reading. And so in his commentary on this section, he brings out those two aspects of the love of Jesus, that what separates Jesus's view of the sinners from, from the way the Pharisees perceive them is that Jesus shows them acceptance. Mm-hmm. He welcomes them to the table, even though clearly as the Son of God, he does not want sinners to continue in sin. So he accepts them where they are, even though he doesn't want them to stay where they are. And that's something interesting because the Pharisees don't have that kind of relationship to these sinners. They want to see them not be where they are, but they do not accept them where they are. Mm. And, and they seem to believe that accepting them where they are precludes the desire to see them go where they ought to go, right? In what, other words, what do you mean? If I accept them, I'm saying it's okay for them to be sinners. Mm-hmm. I'm saying they should just stay the way that they are. Or, as I said in the sermon, they're exemplifying that attitude you hear a lot these days. You do you. Yeah. You know, just, just you do you. I'll worry about myself. You worry about yourself, which is a kind of indifference, Right, what you're doing might be destroying you, but you do you. You know that's that's your decision. It's none of my business. So the Pharisees seem to see Jesus's acceptance as something like that—that mm-hmm. he's welcoming sinners to the table because he's okay with them being sinners. It doesn't seem conceivable to them that you could accept sinners in love but also want to see them change. So that other kind of love is the transforming or transformative love. Like yeah. the, the, the desire to see the one you love become what he or she ought to be. And I think the Pharisees would probably say that's the way we love sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they really love sinners at, at all is, is probably open to debate, but they would at least claim that they have this love for their neighbors. It's just that, it, it is loving to want them to reform themselves, to straighten up their act, and, and to do what is right. Mm-hmm. And until they do that, to accept them would be wrong. So what's unique about Jesus is that we see both of these kinds of love demonstrated, that clearly he has this transforming love, this desire to see sinners made whole, to see human beings who have fallen far from their communion with God restored to full communion. So he wants to see them change. But at the same time, that love does not preclude his acceptance of them. And somehow it seems to dictate or demand his acceptance. That's maybe the key. And I don't think it's something that I really brought out in the sermon. Um, 
I was going to say because I didn't have time, but that <laughs> sermon actually went very long. Uh, but obviously, when I say Jesus loves them in both kinds, I don't mean there are two kinds of love that Jesus shows. It's one, mm-hmm. one whole, complete, perfect love yeah. that he possesses. But as we try to wrap our minds around it, we see it from these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so where for us, our love is incomplete at best. And so we see it almost in pieces, right? I have this kind of love, not that kind of love. Jesus, of course, brings all the love to the situation that <laughs> that it's possible to have. And it, and to us, it looks like, like different kinds or layers of love. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what I got stuck on because I, I see in my own life a tendency to lean one way or the other or see in other people or even certain groups of people to lean one way or the other in our understanding of love. But I think you're right that a holistic picture kind of demands both. I've, I've seen discussions though, where maybe if, maybe if you're a more liberal progressive type person, even thinking that you know what's best for someone, how, what who they should be, is um, is kind of like too much. That's not love, you know. To truly love someone is is pure acceptance. Where other people, like the Pharisees, I guess maybe it's a more religious mindset, won't accept someone until they've reformed, until they've cleaned themselves up, and then we welcome you in an act of love. Yeah, well, I think it's it's a very human thing for us to rationalize our lovelessness or, or where our love fails by saying that kind of love isn't love. Yeah. You know, that, that acceptance isn't love if I'm not accepting. Mm-hmm. Or the desire for transformation isn't real love if I don't feel that desire. And so... Here, the example of Jesus, I think, is challenging to us for precisely that reason, because it calls us, wherever we are, wherever uh, we happen to be, you know, whatever sort of uh, stunted, impoverished kind of love we're clinging to, it calls us to something fuller than that, mm-hmm. that, that actually is open to all of these different possibilities, right? So, so a, a real full love has room both for acceptance and that desire for transformation for the good of the one who is loved and does not see a conflict between those two things, right? I mean, we get that in ordinary life. If you think about, you know, parental love, you know, the way that that a good parent feels towards a child, Right. There is that acceptance. You know, I, I, I love my child because this is my child. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that you look past the shortcomings, the blemishes, the faults, whatever, and, and have an accepting love. But <laughs> you also have a kind of love that, that wants to see flourishing, that, that wants to, to see that child become, you know, his or her best self, uh, not just to see them happy, but fulfilled, mm-hmm. uh, doing good in the world. And, 
living before God as they should. Like the, all of those desires, I think, are recognizable to us, even though as human beings, finite and fallen, we acknowledge, yeah, I don't accept anybody as fully as I should. And no, I don't know really what's best for everybody, mm-hmm. even though I sometimes think I do. <laughs> you know, All I can do is aspire to be accepting as Christ is and, and to desire for transformation as he does, you know, because he does know best. And yeah. so... I think there, the example of Jesus calls to us in a way that, that's helpful regardless. But there's also another question, I think, that, that this example raises, which has to do with how we think about sinners in general. So how we as the church think about sinners and what the needs of sinners are. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those points that is I think highly debated. There is definitely a tension now and in, in our world when it comes to how the church speaks to the people around us. Do we address them first and foremost as sinners who are welcome and accepted at Christ's table, or do we address them first and foremost as sinners? who are displeasing to a holy God and ought to repent and turn from those sins. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully, as you hear me present this either-or scenario, you're thinking, could it be both and? Like, could (laughs) could, could both of these things be be right? And and yeah, I mean, clearly, both have their place. And yet, in our message to the world, I think it is legitimate to ask, which comes first. Hmm. Now, one way of thinking would say, well, surely the call to repentance has to come first. But surely, before a person recognizes their need for Jesus, they must first feel conviction of their sin. Mm-hmm. If sin is the problem and Jesus is the solution, then maybe the message we send to the world should primarily be focused on what is wrong with the world so that the world can get right so that it can then come to Jesus. Mm-hmm. You can understand. Yeah. You got to feel convicted for your sin before you'd have right. any reason to turn. Kind yeah. Of thing. And you can see that that has a loving context. It fits into that transforming love that we were talking about mm-hmm. because Human beings weren't made to be sinners. We ought to turn from our sin. We ought to follow Christ. So all of that makes perfect sense. I I remember an example from some of my teachers growing up who would compare it to like if if you had a a terrible sickness or cancer that you didn't know about and someone came along and revealed it to you. Hey, hey, by the way, you know, or some doctor figured it out and told you, of course, you'd see that as an act of love and you'd you'd thank them and, and... and you'd be grateful. And then they say, well, so too with sinners in the world. They must know, you know, about this condition that they're in, but they don't know that they're in perhaps. Right. And, and again, I think there's some truth to that, but it's often missing maybe the, the full orbed acceptance piece as well. Yes. Like I, I think it's, it's deeply true. The thing that gives me pause is that as we read Matthew nine, it also seems to be the logic of the Pharisees. Yeah. That's the thing that, that ought to make us just just pause for a moment, right, and think. If 
we take that approach. We say what, what should come first is always the condemnation of sin. Are we in danger of being in the same boat as those Pharisees and not understanding the way Jesus is actually pursuing his ministry? Right? There's no question that Jesus condemns sin. There's no question that, that in his teaching, as Doriani points out, he's constantly emphasizing what his standards are. And yet the way that he deals with sinners, mercy comes first. Mm -hmm. Love is the foundation. And to me, that's very compelling because what we're talking about isn't an either or. What we're talking about really is, is a priority. Like what is more foundational to Christ's way of speaking to sinners, his way of speaking to the world. And there's no question that that, that message includes a call to repentance, that that call to repentance is, is fundamental. And yet, the, the thing that seems to be the, the, the root is fundamentally mercy. Mm-hmm. As Doriani points out, you know, this is a covenant made with sinners. And so mercy to sinners is foundational. It comes before obedience, right? We see obedience as gratitude, an act of gratitude after the fact, once God has already shown us his mercy. So in salvation, in our doctrine of salvation, acceptance comes before transformation. (laughs) Justification comes before sanctification. And I think there's there's a a good reason why in the way we speak, that logic should be preserved. So if you are one of the people, the many people now, hip deep in culture war conflict and, and really concerned that what the church needs to be doing now is articulating its positions on the issues. If the church isn't out there saying, you know, here's what we think is right and wrong about what people are talking about today, then we are neglecting the most important aspect of the gospel, the call to repentance. But I think the example of Jesus showing us that although there is a place for articulating those things, there's an even more fundamental place for mercy, for all of what comes afterwards to be couched in that act of mercy. So you have to have it all. There's no either or. Mm -hmm. It all has to be there. It's merely a question of emphasis. But I often ask myself, if, if the world around us could only know one thing about our church, like if, if everyone in our city was only going to retain one fact about Grace Presbyterian Church, Mm. and somehow I got to choose what fact that was, what would I want it to be? And you know what? I can't think of any issue, no matter how important it is, where I would say, I want the one thing that they remember about us to be where we stand on this issue. It's not because I don't care about the issues, but when I think about only one thing, doesn't it have to be the love of Christ? Doesn't it have to be the mercy that is, is at the heart of the gospel? I think it does. 
So fortunately, we don't have to make that kind of choice. And, and, and I would never encourage you to, to boil it all down to one thing. Yeah. But it does at least help explain why ministers of the church might want to cling tenaciously to a Christocentric gospel proclamation, might, like Paul, be determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, even when it seems to you like the most important thing to be vocal about right now is what everybody else is being vocal about. There's another, this is, this is a rabbit trail, but, but there's another (laughs) aspect of this. I think that is helpful in terms of, again, priority, like seeing how Jesus can set priorities for us, which is the temptation to make our main message to sinners, our main message to the world, sort of a, here's what we think is wrong about what you think is right. That's happening all around us, right? It's not just people in the church that feel that draw. Like that's part of the, let's see, mindset or even structure of our sort of social media moment is that a lot of it involves us weighing in and revealing kind of our view, our position on all these various things. Hot right? takes. Exactly. Dunking. So, So take the gospel out of the equation. Everybody's doing this now. It's just that Christians are doing it with a different set of issues than, you know, maybe someone who's just all in on politics or all in on whatever. So it's very much a thing of the moment. I'm going to suggest there might be a reason to resist the thing of the moment and that we can learn from the ancient church here in this regard. So if you look at the creeds, Those early Christian creeds were all formed as a result of heretical questions that arose in the church, right? You wouldn't have a Nicene Creed if it weren't for Arianism. But the Nicene Creed is not a list of what's wrong with Arianism. It's a positive statement of what's right. And it's a very full statement. It addresses mistakes that Arians make obliquely, but it actually is a full-orbed, presentation of what Christians must believe based on the revelation of God and scripture. And I think you see in the creedal project generally that kind of a bias, even in the Athanasian creed or the Chalcedonian definition where you definitely have some negation, where you you have spelled out, here's what's wrong with these views. It's still within the larger context of, let's say, a full-orbed presentation of the truth, beginning where the truth begins. That's not always the case, though. In the Reformed world, we could go back to the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort are a Reformed confession, essentially, but, but it is a confessional statement in response to objections made against Reformed orthodoxy. So there was a remonstrance, and it had five points. And so it was answered, and they answered the five points of the remonstrance with the five points that come out of the canons of Dort, um, which now we call the five points of Calvinism. And there's an irony to that. As any Presbyterian pastor teaching Reformed soteriology will explain, there's a lot more to it than the five points. 
well, how did we come to believe there was just five points to Calvinism? Because in a confessional statement, those five things were addressed Mm -hmm. and the other stuff wasn't. Now, it was. I mean, if you actually go back and read the Canons of Dort, it's not just five bullet points the way that it kind of got boiled down. But you see the point that I'm making. If, if, If it's just reactive... It, if it's it just kind of narrowed down. Yeah. If, if all you're doing is responding mm-hmm. and then that's what gets passed down, then for the next generation and the one after that, the only thing they may inherit is your negation of the errors of the past, which is fine, except that it omits the positive truth, mm. right? That's the challenge mm. that if, our main focus is on saying no to whatever the problems of the moment are. What we're not handing down is the ability to figure out what the problems of tomorrow are. Put it this way, and this, is, this, is, this comes out of my Worldview Academy experience. Um, when we're working with teenagers, the temptation in ministry to teens is always to just give them the biblical position on whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. Let me just tell you what the Bible says about X. The difficulty is more and more what's not being passed down to future generations is the ability to take some new question, to examine it and determine using scripture, what the biblical view of that might be. Yeah. So that you have a generation of disciples who can parrot right answers that they've been taught, but don't have the tools to find the answers on future questions. Because what they've gotten a lot of is, here's what's wrong with the world, and they haven't got a lot of, here's what's true and, and here's what's true is more fundamental. As I say, there's a place for all of it. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not talking about either or. Yeah. We're talking about priorities here. So as Jesus brings sinners to the table, he demonstrates a priority of acceptance yeah. that brings them to the table, obviously with the view of transformation. What I'm saying is something similar can influence the way we see sinners in our community, where we too have a desire to see them transformed by the gospel as we are being transformed by it. But then we remember, wait, before I was transformed by it, I was accepted by Christ. I was chosen by Christ before I was changed by him. And I should expect that same thing for the sinners all around me. So I think from a, an act as simple as Jesus opening his table to sinners and tax collectors, there's actually a lot that we can learn about how to love the sinners in our community, the sinners in our midst, uh, the sinners we go to church with. Among whom I am the foremost. <laughs> I would like to remind everyone. Um, I was just thinking too, I mean, this is how God loves us. You know, if we're talking about how God loves sinners, that that's us. And, and I think Jesus is doing that with the Pharisees a little bit with his Old Testament reference, getting them to, to go back and remember how, oh yeah, you know, Israel rebelled against God and we're not so pure either. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. 
thing to think that God accepts us before we've cleaned ourselves up and yet doesn't leave us where we're at, you know, doesn't just say, well, I guess, you know, you, you'll do, but brings us to that state of fulfillment. Like you were saying, I, yeah, I think that it's, yeah, always holding those two together. It's never like one or the other. It's yeah. not, maybe it's not even helpful to think in that term, that kind of dichotomy. But it's well, I I think it is helpful because just pedagogically we have to, yeah, right. Like we're never gonna be able to grasp it all at once. We need to be able to divide it into pieces and kind of divide and conquer in that way. But what can be really helpful, I think, is to understand that this desire for transformation is positive, not negative, mm-hmm. right? That the 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 thing that's happening in sanctification is not we're getting less and less sinful. It's that we're being made more and more in the image of Christ. And the, the less sinful part is just a byproduct of the more Christ-like part. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is a restoration of communion. And so that's why I like the idea of, of Matthew 9's image of Jesus at the table with sinners. Because it's a picture of communion. Right, that that if salvation is just about escaping the consequences of sin, we we understand salvation primarily in a negative way. But we're escaping the consequences of sin so that we can enjoy this face to face communion with God, which we were created for as human beings. And so, that positive sense of transformation, I think, is what is essential for us to carry over like this is Jesus's love right this is Jesus loving sinners in a way that will restore to them that communion with God and our love for sinners needs to have that similar hope for them as well so that it's it's not I'm not saying first we must accept them and then once we've accepted them we must start working on their sins <laughs> I'm saying that we must accept them as we have been accepted and having accepted them as we were accepted, we must then work on drawing them nearer and nearer to Christ as we are being drawn. Right. Which right. does take repentance. It does. You know, it, it is does. turning away constantly. Right. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's that it just helps us to understand in every sense, the question again, it, it's how to see the sinner, not what must the sinner do? Right. So I'm not trying to say, you know, when, when Peter says repent and believe, you know, at, <laughs> at uh, his, his sermon in Acts that, that he is getting the order wrong and ought to have said, be accepted and, and, and then repent later. But, but it's not even repentance. It's just being conformed to the image of God. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah. What I'm saying specifically is how we see sinners, how we regard them in relation to us and in relation to Christ. So obviously we must repent and believe but the people who are repenting and believing are people who have been accepted and are being transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning I read uh, from John 15, the beautiful passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the love of God and his love for them. And then maybe it'll be a good way to close this episode. So this is starting at verse 7. If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.